The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox. We are live from Dubai at the COP28 climate conference. And of course, Karen uh, running the ship in the London studio. And these uh, are your headlines. Grabbing the bull by the horns, U.S. equity majors close out their best November in decades, fueling a global stock market rally as bets grow. The Federal Reserve is winning its battle against inflation. OPEC Plus deepens production cuts as it seeks to bolster the market, but there's little spillover into prices. Asian equities slide as investors digest mixed economic data across the region but China's manufacturing sector posts surprise growth. And smoke billows over the Gaza Strip as a seven-day truce expires and Israel resumes combat with Hamas. Anyone got Brent for me? Uh, a warm welcome to the show. Lovely to see you all today. Uh, OPEC Plus, uh, pretty much as many people I think expected, OPEC Plus has announced uh, additional voluntary production cuts, taking the total to 2.2 million barrels per day for the first quarter of 2024. And avid viewers of Scorebox, I think you're all avid viewers, aren't you, uh, would have known we've been talking about the rollover to the first quarter quite a bit already on this show. Now, the agreement will see Saudi Arabia as I say, roll over its cuts of 1 million barrels per day, whilst Russia will deepen its own to 500,000 from the current 300,000. Now, crude prices have fallen very aggressively from their uh, highs in September. They've fallen around about 20% from those levels. Uh, in fact, at the start of the uh, uh, Israel-Hamas conflict, uh, we got up as high as nearly $100 a barrel. But uh, what is happening here is the oil price is going down, reflecting concerns about the broader macro outlook and global demand and about supply. I'll come to that in a few moments' time. Coupled with speculation uh, of less agreement within the OPEC plus grouping, of course, uh, coming into this as well, uh, a lot of nations, we understand, were looking for higher production quotas. And, and Karen, I think it's very interesting. And, and I'll frame this without talking too much about our next conversation about the markets, about inflation. But the fact remains, OPEC has been cutting a lot of barrels of supply so far this year. Uh, and they've done that despite the fact that there are great hopes that China would be reopening quite strongly, despite the fact that we had this blockbuster print already this week of over 5% annualized GDP growth in the United States as well. So, but a lot of people scratching their heads and saying, well, where is the demand? Why isn't the demand coming through? Well, there's a lot of problems here for the OPEC producers at the moment, and, and, and it's, it's potentially set to intensify because as they withdraw production, Others are filling the gap, and there's a lot of commentary about how difficult it is for OPEC and OPEC Plus historically to get that market share back, if it seeds market share. Because there was something else that happened overnight as well, which I think our viewers need to know if they're interested in the oil complex. And that is the fact that now oil production in the United States, which of course um, stands juxtaposed to the production over at OPEC, has gone up aggressively. There was a new record set in September for U.S. oil production of 13.24 million barrels a day. So OPEC pulls production, OPEC, non-OPEC, including the U.S., 
fill some of that production as well. And that's not really, what, of course, what OPEC wants to see as well. There are also concerns about inventory build amongst OECD nations. And of course, we know the Chinese have been uh, upping their inventory build early in the year. So the question remains is, and again, this will tie into our next conversation, Karen. The markets have gone gung-ho to the upside, and you're going to tell us all about that in a few moments' time, and they really are quite stratospheric figures. And they've done that on the hopes that inflation and the inflation dragon has been defeated by those gallant central banks. But the problem is, can we get the soft landing? And the one thing I will say, the one fly in the ointment to all the ebullience in the markets over the month of November, which is now last month, I can't believe we're opening our first day of our advent calendars today, everybody. The fact of the matter is, one sector didn't enjoy the party, and that's oil. And if the global trade and the global economy was doing so well, why is oil the only one down? Karen, I'll leave that one with you. Well done, holding out on the advent calendar for today, Steve. Uh, ours got opened early, but uh, when it comes to <laughs> the oil price, I, I think it's fascinating we're talking about some sort of cuts here in the backdrop by a series of producers when it was only a couple of months ago that we're talking about a price that was nearing $100 a barrel. So fairly dramatic U-turn really in terms of some of the price action for the markets as a result. Uh, what we've had too, I think it was fascinating to see that the Saudis were very much on the front foot going into this meeting, trying to wrangle out some concessions from those other member states. And uh, now having uh, the uh, Brazilians in the room, that's fascinating, isn't it? One of the, the top uh, 10 producers, now a member of the group, but it looks like it comes with caveats. They are only part of the Charter of Cooperation. So this is a, a way you can exchange views and information, uh, but uh, not around the main declaration of cooperation, which is around production management. So they're in the room, it seems, Steve, but they're not really allowed to, to make any decisions. Is that how it plays out? Is this about tapping into the EM demand story by bringing the Brazilians into the room? Yeah, look, 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 no doubt about it. The OPEC grouping reinvented itself when Alexander Novak joined the party, i.e. the Russians. They went from circa 28, 30% of global supply to 40%. And it was a massive statement. And, and at the start, it was very, very successful getting the Russians in the grouping, something I never thought would happen, having spent 15 years at OPEC. But now you brought in another major producer, the Brazilians as well, and it hasn't rocked the boat. It hasn't made people think, oh my goodness me, we're going to have tighter supply on the markets as well. And what I think is fascinating, and I'll come back to a similar kind of point I was raising earlier as well, is that the global economy is growing. The global markets are saying we're going to have a soft landing. The global oil markets are not saying that. Look at what we've got. We've got conflict in the Middle East, which has worried many people about the safety of production there and supply. We've got conflict in Europe, one of the worst wars anyone's ever lived through, and the, the Russia-Ukraine war as well, with one of the major oil producers on the planet as well. Despite that, and despite the reopening in China, and despite the US growing at 5% as well, we still have oil only circa $80 a barrel, which is at the bottom end of where many of the producers would like to see it. They'd probably like to see it near $100 a barrel. Doesn't that ring just a tiny alarm bell? I know we're in the month of Christmas, so maybe a jingle bell for everyone who's looking at these markets and going, everything is fine, we're going to have a soft landing, the consumer's fine, global economy's fine, trade's fine as well. I just want to just add it in there as maybe not the base case scenario, not at the top of the bell curve, but it's just something to say, is this a better marker than PMIs? Is this a better marker than other bullish factors we're seeing at the moment? But you're about to tell us all about these stunning US market moves. 
Steve, uh, so much festive cheer in the month of November does pose the question for markets now as to whether there will be a Santa Claus rally. Has it all been front-loaded for the month of November? And you can see across the board the Nasdaq uh, leading the charge and uh, those tech stocks well and truly back in favour. 10.7% high for the Nasdaq, almost 9% in the green for the S&P 500 and trailing very close behind the likes of the Dow, which was very strong into the finish. Some of the other major boards really fading as we closed out the month of November. Not the case for the Dow. A late stage bounce as well yesterday. Another 1.5% or 500 plus points to the upside, taking us just shy of 36,000 points as a result. But uh, the bounce there, big companies like Salesforce with numbers out and also talking about uh, Einstein GPT. This is its AI offering. So uh, again, a further boost for markets. And AI, another important leg that investors were closely monitoring as some of those credit cost concerns ease. They regrouped and they focused again on the AI story and video was a big moving stock for the likes of the Nasdaq as well. So uh, yesterday as we wrapped up the trade, it was worth noting that you saw the Nasdaq move just a little bit softer in session. So again, have we run out of some of the steam on the tech sector at this point and take a look at the extent of the gains over the month for the individual tech names and perhaps it tells you a story why 15% high for Netflix, outpaced by Tesla, and we had the news around the Cybertruck finally coming to market, 19.5% high for the month of November. Elsewhere across the board, NVIDIA is standout, the AI chip play, 14% plus to the upside. But uh, ranges, I mean, if you look across to the, some of the other big uh, tech leaders, the likes of Microsoft often seen as having market leadership, not just tech leadership, up 12%. Apple in the range too, the ones uh, slightly left behind. The likes of Alphabet, but still a very stunning near 7% gain for the month. I want to take you to what we had on the, the dollar. As a result of yesterday, it was interesting, the market uh, had many different interpretations around that PCE number, and we'll get to this in just a bit. But some thought it was tame enough. We had the core sliding still going the right direction, 3.7 down to 3.5%. Others are saying, look, this is telling us the story that you've still got sticky inflation in the United States. So there's a little bit of life back in the dollar yesterday, but over the course of the month, it has been a slow move south for this trade. And you can see the monthly performance down 3%. I want to take you to the VIX and uh, the so-called fear gauge. How has it been performing in a month where we've had so much upside for markets? We'll probably know surprise, but there's been not much fear in the market. We have uh, declined all the way down to the low teens and holding below the 13 handle at this point. So uh, off some of the high levels above uh, 16, as you can see, as we started out the month of November, getting right down to a 12 handle. To the Asian markets, um, we've had a really mixed bag on the Chinese picture. Um, weaker data earlier this week, stronger data today, about a third of percent up now for the Shanghai composite uh, for the month of November. That's barely budging, is it? Uh, we've really seen very little life out of the market there. Hong Kong stocks, I think some would say that's not a bad performance after what they've seen in recent months. It's been a fairly a strong decline for this market uh, over the, the property concerns. Just four tens down the month of November, but stark contrast to the gains elsewhere. The resource-heavy Australian market, and perhaps linked to some of those China concerns, did not quite keep pace with some of the other international markets. It was better than the FTSE, but it was nowhere near the Dow. And you could see uh, stocks over in Japan very much keeping pace with those US boards. Eight and a half percent to the upside. I know some of the fund managers still looking at the Japanese market into 2024. Steve. Yeah, I bet they are. And, and I just, I'll get another one you, you've thrown in there. That they, if you'd have had the tech energy subsector pair on, someone out there would have done. Oh, my goodness me. If you got that one right or wrong, 
the difference between tech and energy performance was in total with the negative energy and the positive tech, about 13.4% difference in the performance of those two sectors. That, that's a year's P&L, isn't it? Anyway, the Federal Reserve's favoured inflation gauge, uh, that's core PCE, I know you all know that by now, it rose just 0.2% on a month in October. That's what get people excited. That's an annual figure coming in at 3.5%. That is the slowest rise in over two and a half years. Now, that cool down in spending coupled with a two year high in continuing jobless claims is reinforcing a part of the market, some of the market bets, that the Fed will keep rates on hold in December and call an end to its hiking cycle. Absolutely fascinating, but so is the Chinese data, Karen. Read in today, Steve. China's Kaizhen Manufacturing Purchases Managers Index showed surprised expansion in November. It comes after official data showed the sector contracting for a second straight month. Let's get out to Lin for more out of Singapore. Lin, it's a contrasting picture we're seeing, but we know that the one series captures the bigger manufacturers, the other captures the slightly smaller end of the range. So what's playing out in terms of the activity dynamics? Well, good morning to you, Karen. When you look at the data, the biggest divergence here is actually in relation to new domestic orders. So if you look at the Taishin index for the month of November, it actually rose to the highest level since June. That's the new orders. And some uh, economists are saying that the divergence can also be put down to the different samples as well as the measures in terms of different geographic locations because the Taishin is in relation, as you said, to those uh, smaller export-driven firms that are more in the coastal regions versus uh, the official gauge, which is those larger uh, state-owned firms. Drilling down into the indices for the Taishin survey to just get some clues about the Chinese economy, when it comes to the input and the output prices, which of course is a good precursor to inflation data coming later this month, you've got uh, input costs slightly up while uh, output costs are mildly down as manufacturers try to clear inventory. When it comes uh, to the employment gauge, manufacturers are still showing caution. That gauge is uh, down in terms of the last uh, eight times of the last uh, nine months. And also we've got payroll cuts coming through for the third straight month. Uh, the good news is that business sentiment appears to be improving. October showing that uh, a sentiment was at a one-year low, although uh, manufacturers still quite worried about uh, the overall macro outlook and that's probably one thing that these two gauges had in common which was that new export orders for both still in contraction territory. Karen it's back to you. Lynn thank you very much for bringing us the latest there. Elsewhere fighting has resumed as a seven-day humanitarian truce between Israel and Hamas came to an end. The pause in fighting allowed for the release of Hamas-held hostages in return for Palestinian detainees. The IDF announced minutes after the deadline that it had resumed combat operations in Gaza with smoke seen billowing across the enclave. Steve. Thanks, Karen. OK, we've got another incredibly busy day of coverage here uh, out of Dubai and the COP28. Kicking things off in a few moments' time, Andrew Steer. A fascinating interview. Dan's going to conduct this one. President and CEO of the Bezos Earth Fund. Uh, but that is not all. We're going to be speaking to the CEOs of EY. Uh, we'll speak to the deputy CEO of Volvo Cars, and the uh, Equinor CEO, as well as the AIIB president uh, and the Prime Minister of Estonia, to name but a few. All that to come this morning here on CNBC.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to the program. It is, of course, World Leaders Day here at COP28 in Dubai. Delegates came to a surprise compromise Thursday on a $400 million loss and damage fund to pay for the impacts of climate change experienced by the world's poorest nations. The move also comes after a 30-year fight and raises hopes of further agreements in the coming two weeks as well. CNBC's Tanya Breyer sat down with Microsoft founder Bill Gates and asked him what he'd say to critics of the summit and whether any action is actually taken. Well, the, the collaboration between those sectors has improved a great deal. And I think you can go back you know, two years ago to the, the COP in Scotland where the private sector really started coming. Um, and you know, we are falling short of our aspirations in many areas and you know coming and saying okay how do we catch up uh can we do better in one area which countries are doing particularly well are there models from that you know it is a a a super important issue um you know it's definitely a glass half full we haven't gone as fast as as we'd like and yet, particularly if you uh, see in the innovation pavilion, these uh, smaller companies, the ideas cover all the areas of emissions. And there's hope that many of these clean approaches, given time, won't cost extra. You know, today, solar electricity or uh, the batteries we use in, in electric cars, those costs have come down. And so that same magic of invention and scale up, if we apply that broadly, you know, that's why I have hope uh, that despite all these delays and incredible complexity, uh, that you know, the message coming out of these meetings does help drive progress. What happens if we don't do it? Well, there's, there's not some binary cutoff where at a certain temperature, everything's horrible. Uh, we are going to have warming. Um, you know, likely uh, above our goals. And that's where adaptation comes in to say, okay, because of this warming, what can you do that's very inexpensive, you know, like better warning systems for um, bad weather events or, or better weather data to help farmers know when to plant. And, and then of course the seeds, which are you know, probably the most exciting area. Uh, we will have to help the poorest adapt. Um, we will have to uh, try and, and make sure the damage to ecosystems like coral reefs is uh, somehow minimized. Uh, so, you know, we, fortunately we've made enough progress, we're not going to have the extreme cases like a four degree centigrade warming. Uh, but we'll, we'll sadly uh, probably even miss the two degree goal and uh, so we'll will have adaptation as a priority. Bill Gates in conversation with Tanya Breyer there. Meanwhile, conservation is key in the fight against climate change, according to the Bezos Earth Fund. 
The fund aims to allocate $10 billion in grants by 2030 and supports public-private partnerships. Very pleased to say that Andrew Steer is here. He's president and CEO of the Bezos Earth Fund. He joins me around the desk here at COP28. Andrew, welcome to the program. It's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Dan. So it was back in 2020 when Jeff Bezos decided to establish the fund. He's given you $10 billion to spend by 2030. So what's your mandate? Well, um, as you know, $10 billion is a lot of money, incredibly generous act. But of course, compared to the need, it's small. And so for us, it makes uh, it's important that every dollar that we provide as a grant sort of really leverages scale, so to speak. So that's what we try to do. First of all, we committed $3 billion to conserve nature, a $1 billion to conserve what we still have, a $1 billion to restore what we've lost, and a $1 billion to, to reform food systems and take pressure off nature and also address climate change. And it's very exciting. I mean, we've, in each of these areas, we've seen remarkable progress because if you think about it, I mean, four years ago, you come to a climate meeting, nature was not on the agenda. And yet, of course, food, agriculture and nature accounts for one third of the problem and can be one third of the solution. And so now, today, this very day, for the first time in history, we'll have more than 100 countries committing to embed agriculture and food into the way they do climate. But in addition to the nature uh, agenda, we're also heavily involved in decarbonizing energy, decarbonizing transport, including the hard, so-called hard-to-abate sectors, the steel, the cement, the airlines, and so on. So we have a broad agenda, but we're very encouraged um, about how things are going. Climate financing is absolutely critical at this COP, and overnight we've seen the release of a really critical report that you've been watching, the Stern Songway report. What does it tell us about how much money is needed and where it's going to come from? Well, it tells us that we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> As everybody knows, that uh, we've set ourselves a target for 2030, and we need to take 43% uh, of the emissions down between 2019 and 2030. That's a huge uh, task. That will require that financing for, um, for emerging and lower income countries uh, increases sevenfold over the next uh, seven years, so that by 2030 we have something like two and a half trillion dollars a year. Now where we've failed is to, is to help the private sector come in. What we have not done a good job at is making sure that public and private and philanthropy work together. And so, for example, the multilateral banking system, the World Bank and the regional banks, doing great work with their own money, but actually they're not playing a very effective role at mobilizing the private money, de-risking. Indeed, they come into the financial stack as the preferred creditor, whilst in fact they need to be taking some of the first loss, not just the last loss, so to speak. This is where philanthropy can come in, of course, because we actually can be, we can move quickly um, and we can take risks. Um, we do need to know what those risks are. We do need to know that we get real leverage. And actually at this meeting, uh, we'll be uh, committing um, some serious resources to a new uh, program, something called Allied Climate Partners, which actually will for the first time bring private money into project preparation in emerging and developing countries. Because up until now, um, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of money that's willing to come in once a project is designed, but it's that first two years, which only counts for 5% of the total cost of a project, it's that first two years is the most risky. And, and sometimes half of all the projects you, you, you 
you start to prepare actually don't reach financial closure. So we're investing very heavily in that to try and demonstrate by taking the first loss of willingness um, to demonstrate that actually then the private sector can come in and be part of that. So a lot of innovation in the air right now. So good progress is being made on the private side, but what would you say today is the single biggest barrier to mobilizing private capital in this space? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's less financial engineering. A lot of people say, what's the next financial trick? And there are some financial tricks that we need to do. Um, but actually, it's more of an attitudinal change. What we, what we need to do, if a country like Vietnam, for example, has just committed to stop building coal-powered electricity generating plants and African countries and Middle Eastern countries are doing the same thing. The G7 comes in and says we'll provide some funding but actually the funding is a little squishy and what we need to do is together have senior players from private finance, from the multilateral development banks, from the development finance corporations, from philanthropy and so on together led by the government of the host country and say, look, let's get serious here. Uh, let's get serious people that can come in, sit around the table with checkbooks that actually can make decisions together. The moment we're still all entering it from our own little lens. And so whilst we talk a huge amount about blended finance, actually it's only happening at a small scale and it needs to happen on a much, much bigger scale. And that requires much more of a kind of moonshot sort of approach where where CEOs that have real authority sit down together with host countries and make decisions. Talk to me a little bit about one of the other major priorities here, which is the transformation of food systems. I know we're expecting quite a significant announcement at COP on this. And also, before I let you go, where are you going to be prioritizing capital deployment in the year ahead? Well, on the, on the food agenda, um, uh, they're really two sides, both of which are very important. One, the adaptation agenda. It is farmers that pay the biggest price for climate change. And what's happening to yields in Africa and the Middle East is, is, really, uh, is really very sad in some places. And so we need to do a much, much better job at the idea of creating sort of resilient food systems. And that means agricultural research. It requires extension. It requires a whole lot of new things, including landscape restoration, where we're putting a billion dollars into that, bringing down those uh, carbon dioxide molecules from the atmosphere where they're actually killing people, bringing them down to earth in the form of trees and bushes and crops and soils. So that instead of death, they bring life and vitality and resilience and, and double farm incomes they can in some instances. So, so on the adaptation side, that's important. But then on the mitigation side, agriculture has a huge role to play. And so we're putting a, a lot of our resources into issues ranging from how do you create uh, cattle that actually don't emit methane? How do you stop cattle encroaching into forests in the Amazon and other places? So there's a whole range of issues there, but also on the, on the, the landscape restoration, again, bringing down those, 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 uh, those carbon dioxide molecules in a way that actually solves the problem rather than causes the problem. Right, absolutely fascinating. Andrew, I wish we had more time, particularly on the cows that don't emit methane, but we'll save that for the next conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Thanks. Dan. We're thank really grateful for what CNBC's doing to bring to a sophisticated financial audience these very, very important issues. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.